When it comes to religion, one of the most common questions asked is, if God is sovereign, if God is in charge and all-powerful, then what about human responsibility? If God predestines us, then what about human free choice or free will? This is Evidence and Answers with scholar, author, and Christian apologist, Pat Zuckerin. I'm Kevin Harris. Today, we're going to explore this very complex yet fascinating question with Dr. Norman Geisler. Dr. Geisler is a philosopher philosopher and theologian who is an expert in this issue of God's sovereignty and human freedom. The entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. In fact, we have several interviews with Dr. Norman Geisler at evidenceandanswers.org. Today, part two with Dr. Geisler. Pat? Yes, Kevin. We have with us our returning guest, Dr. Norman Geisler. And if you know apologetics, you know the name Dr. Norman Geisler. He's an author of over 50 books, He's debated atheists and those who oppose Christianity in all 50 states. He, for decades, has been a leading defender of the Christian faith, and he's also addressed some of the toughest theological questions that we all wrestle with. And the one that I get all over the world, one of the most popular questions that I always get asked is predestination and free will. God predestines, how can there be free will? So, to help us address this question, and he's even written a book on it, a great book you need to get, Chosen But Free, is Dr. Norman Geisler. Dr. Geisler, welcome to the show. Great to be with you again. Now, we talked last week, you built a case that God is sovereign, even sovereign over the decisions that we make, but you also built a strong case that there is also human free will, and God holds us responsible for the choices that we make. Summarize for us again, how do we put the two together? How can there be freedom of choice if God has predestined everything? Yeah, let me just summarize. Uh, There is no responsibility without the ability to respond. And everyone on both sides of this debate acknowledges that human beings are responsible, and uh, they have commands from God, and if they don't do them, they're they're guilty and responsible. But you can't have responsibility without the ability to respond. If I say, do this, but it's impossible for you to do this, then I can't blame you for not doing it. So, Praise and blame make no sense without free will. Punishment and rewards make no sense without free choice. And for those who say, well, uh, the Bible says we can't um, respond, we don't have the ability to respond, the Bible also says that God provides grace for everyone who is willing, and there's no temptation taken us but what is common to man, and God always provides a way of escape. So what we mean when we say that if you ought to do it, you can do it, and responsibility implies the ability to respond, is you can do it by the grace of God, and God will give you the grace of God God, if you are willing to get it. And then secondly, I think I'd like to point out uh, that uh, there are cases in the Bible where clearly an event was predestined, and yet the Bible says it's free. We all know that Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13.8. We all know from Acts 2.23 uh, that God predetermined the cross. But Jesus said in John 10.18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Now, if Jesus had free will, and if Jesus freely accepted the cross, and yet the cross was predestination, predestined, then there is no contradiction between predestination and free will. Right, and one of the things that uh, you pointed out is that 
Uh, it would be a contradiction if God was in the box of time and space as we are, yet he is beyond, he is outside of that box, he is an eternal being, so it's not a contradiction for an eternal being outside the realm of time. That's right, because he's not foreseeing anything. He sees it in his own eternal present, and the, and the people on both sides of this debate agree that God is an eternal being. He's above time. So if the hyper-Calvinists believe God is above time, uh, and he's not in time and therefore limited with a past or future and has to look forward uh, to the future, if he's not in that box, then he's above it, and he can uh, see down on the whole course of time. The way you would look at a whole page of a calendar, we may be living on uh, one day, say, uh, the 23rd of the month, uh, but when God looks down on the calendar, he sees all 30 days of the month. We look forward to the 25th on the 26th and backward to the 22nd, but God looks downward on all of them and sees the whole thing. Now, uh, there are a couple views here. One view says that, well, God foreknows the future because he has predestined it all. So because he has predestined and planned it all, that's how he knows the future. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's, um, that's uh, I think, uh, wrong. Uh, we've been talking a lot about what's wrong with uh, strong Calvinism. That's what's wrong with Arminianism. Arminius and Arminians believe that God's foreknowledge was based, uh, God's election was based on his foreknowledge. That is, he looked down the corridor of time, and he saw who would believe and who wouldn't believe, and on the basis of the fact that they were going to believe, then God chose them. That is not what we're saying. That's not what the Bible teaches on the topic. God chose them according to the good pleasure of his will, it says in the, the book of Ephesians. What did happen is that God's knowledge and God's choice were both eternal and coordinate acts. He knowingly chose and choosingly knew from all eternity uh, who would and who would not respond. But he's not responding to them. He's proactive, not reactive. He doesn't wait to see what we do and then choose us. He chose us in accordance with his knowledge of what we would do, something like somebody who's deciding, should I get married or should I not? And then if I do, should I marry uh, a person A or person B? Well, all of those are free choices. I don't have to get married. If I get married, I don't have to marry A. I could marry B. But suppose you knew that A uh, would respond if you said, uh, will you marry me, and B wouldn't. Well, then it would be wise for you uh, to choose the one that you knew would respond rather than the one that didn't. But it's a choice that God made in advance of their choice, just like in advance of your choice of whether to marry and whom to marry, you you freely choose to do so. Norm, what do you think the strongest passage is that strong Calvinists go to? Well, they always go to uh, uh, Ephesians 2.1, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And they take that figure of speech literalistically and take it to mean that the unsaved person uh, doesn't know doesn't understand and can't respond, just like a dead corpse can't know or understand or respond. That's not what it means. It means they're without divine life. It means they're separated from God. It doesn't mean they don't have a mind, they don't have a will, they can't understand. Proof of that is in Genesis. You remember it says uh, to Adam, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So Adam died spiritually the moment he ate of that fruit, and then he died literally 930 years later, and uh, had he not believed, he would have died eternally. So there are three kinds of uh, death. The first one, spiritual death, occurs the very moment Adam disbelieved. And yet, he could hear God, 
He spoke to God. God spoke to him in the garden. He wasn't annihilated. So that depravity doesn't mean that we're, uh, the image of God is erased in fallen man. It just means it's effaced. Uh, and the depraved person still has the image of God. Genesis 9, 6 says it's wrong to kill even unsaved people because the image of God is still there. So the extreme Calvinist, I think, has a wrong view of the image of God, a wrong view of depravity, takes depravity so literalistically that it annihilates a person's under ability to understand and respond. Romans 9, that's a biggie. I, I used to avoid that chapter earlier in my Christian life because I, I just found it so difficult to wrestle with and, and even kind of disturbing. Yeah, let me just uh, read a couple of verses that I often hear from the Romans 9, the issue we're talking about here. It says in verse 11, Yet before the twins were born, that's Jacob and Esau, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by the works by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. So it seems like they didn't have a choice here. God had predestined who he's going to love and which one he's not. Well, first of all, uh, Romans 9, 10, 11 is talking about Israel, uh, Israel as a nation, corporate, national Israel. Chapter 9 is Israel's past. Uh, Chapter 10 is their present. Chapter 11 is their future. He says so because in chapter 9, Two, he says, I'm talking about my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, verses 3 and 4. So he's not talking about individual election here. He's talking about corporate election, why God chose the nation of Israel to be the channel through which he would bring salvation into the world. Secondly, when it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, he's not talking about the individual Jacob and the individual Esau. He's talking about the nation Jacob, and the nation Edom that came from Esau. How do we know? Because the quote comes not from Genesis, it comes from Malachi, uh, after the nation had had uh, lived. On top of that, if you look in the context of the chapter, um, their, their hardness, Pharaoh hardening his heart, or God hardening Pharaoh's heart, if you look back to, Gen- uh, to Exodus, where Pharaoh hardened his heart, seven times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before God hardened it. So it wasn't that he was doing it against Pharaoh's free will. He was freely uh, rejecting God, and God was giving him the strength uh, to go on with his rejection, and he wasn't overpowering him. It's exactly what we said. God doesn't overpower somebody's free will. And then right in that chapter, verse 22, uh, Romans 9:22 says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering? What was he enduring? He's enduring these rebellious people who aren't repenting, just like Second Peter 3, 9. Uh, God is long-suffering, not one of the any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the very fact they were vessels of wrath because they weren't repenting shows that their free will was involved. It's interesting how Paul in Romans 9 goes through this, and then many strong Calvinists say, see, everything's predestined, predetermined, da-da-da-da. And then Paul, in the very first verse of chapter 10, says that he's praying for them and he's praying for their salvation. Why pray for them if it's all predetermined anyway? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, the, the answer is that we should pray for them because God is trying to work on them and persuade them, and his grace is persuasive but not coercive. And he responds to our prayers, and he works on people by his grace, but they still have the ability to reject him, as Second Peter 3.9 indicates, and in this very chapter, they were vessels of wrath because they didn't repent, verse 22. 
Yeah, speaking of verse 22, now here's how some people will interpret it. It says that what if God was choosing uh, to show his wrath, uh, make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. So some will say, see, look, God prepared some people and predestined them for destruction and his judgment. Well, he most certainly uh, did, but they were prepared through their own free choice. They were they became re- vessels of wrath. They weren't predestined against their will to be vessels of wrath by their rejection of the truth. They became vessels of wrath because that's why he uses the phrase endured with much long suffering. Those are all long choices that they made to reject him and therefore built up wrath for the day of judgment to which everybody is predetermined. Every unbeliever who rejects uh, him, God is predetermined from all eternity. If you stubbornly uh, resist his grace uh, and uh, his love in your life, uh, you're going to end up in destruction. Pat and Norm, I am so glad that we are discussing this. I personally know three, and perhaps the two of you know even more, I know three Christians who became so discouraged over this issue that we're talking about that they are, are, are no longer uh, following Christ. They're out of fellowship. They're, as the Baptists say, backslidden. Well, I have a file full of letters that I've gotten on this book, uh, Chosen But Free, and let me tell you that overwhelmingly the letters are uh, for the first time in my life, one came from a Presbyterian minister who was retired and said, I struggled with this all my life. I mean, I was supposed to believe it, and I guess I did, but I never had resolution on it. And now for the first time, it makes sense to me, and I've got peace about this whole matter. Wow. Then I got a tragic letter from a lady who said, we went to a, a strong Calvinist church. The pastor believed this. He preached it. Uh, it went into fatalism because uh, if God's predestined and we don't have any choice in it, then what does it matter what we do? It, uh, he went into depression and eventually committed suicide. Wow. Well, that's an extreme example, yeah. but it shows the logic of the view. Right, and it also, you, know, you have a chapter in your book, you know, what difference does it make? But it's important to address these kinds of theological questions, not just to ignore it and say, well, you just got to have faith. Yeah, ideas have consequences. Weaver wrote a book. And uh, Hitler had an idea, and the consequences were 12 million people got uh, uh, killed. So uh, ideas in theology have consequences, too. And one of the things that we point out is that uh, this view will stultify spiritual growth, and it will stultify missions. Uh, we give the illustration in the book of the missionary who went to his Baptist pastor, who was a strong Calvinist, and said, I want to go to the mission field. And he said, well... God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without you. Now, that may be an extreme example, but it, it's indeed what happened. Spurgeon tells, and we quote in here, uh, he was a five-point Calvinist, and yet when he came to verses like he wants all men to be saved, First uh, Timothy 2, he would preach it the way it was written. God wants all of you to be saved, and he would call upon everyone uh, to believe. And someone said, well, aren't you inconsistent with your Calvinism? He said, I'd rather be inconsistent with my Calvinism than with the Word of God. Whew. Norm, I, it's just anecdotal, but I've noticed in my uh, interactions in, in, in ministry that there seems to be kind of a strong Calvinist movement among 20-something males. And uh, I, I think a lot of it I, I trace to the influence of James White, R.C. Sproul, and, and, and John Piper. But I started asking myself, well, what is it with these 20-something males that seem to be so drawn to being hard Calvinists? It's almost like it's hardcore 
or and it empowers them somehow in the face of uh, of a deteriorating uh, moral culture or something. But I haven't been able to get a beat on it. Have, have, do you see anything like that? Yes, I do. And my, my uh, read of it is that we're living in days of insecurity. We've got terrorism, you know, looking uh, everywhere. And I think in days of insecurity, people like a secure system, and they go for uh, Calvinism because it's a very secure system. Everything's predestined. God's in control. You can rest assured that everything's going to come out well. And I think it's because of the insecurity of our days that it's growing. Uh, these people have always been preaching this. Uh, you know, you mentioned R.C. Sproul and others, and others have been preaching it. But why is it catching on now? It was kind of like back in the late 40s and early 50s when we had the atomic bomb and one-minute-to-midnight clocks and all that stuff, you know. Days of insecurity, people look for a secure system. I remember a young man, um, a young African-American who was considering taking an internship at a five-point Calvinist uh, uh, church, and I said to him, now why would you want to do that? They believe that God only loves some people, uh, that Christ, uh, God only loved them, Christ only died for some, and he only uses his, his irresistible grace on some. Uh, what kind of view is that? I said, to me, it's kind of like theological racism to say God only loves white people or God only loves brown people, you know. The, the tragedy of, of hyper-Calvinism uh, or extreme Calvinism came out in a banquet when I was teaching at Dallas Seminary. We had a, a very famous Christian businessman speak at the banquet, and he said, I couldn't come to, to, uh, to grips with my son's death, and I was having a real struggle until I realized that God killed my son, and then for the first time, I came to grips uh, with it and was able to get resolution. And I hit my wife with my elbow, and I said, I wonder what he would have said if his daughter had been raped. I don't think so. I don't think he would have said, God raped my daughter. That's precisely what they believe with regard to free will, because God is the one who is responsible uh, for working through those free acts that become only instruments in his hand and not really... Prime uh, secondary causes of themselves. I well, can't. I can't believe you elbowed Barb. She'll hit you back. <laughs> you know, well, I don't know. She's a anyway. better theologian than I am, but I didn't want that one to pass by. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> well, we talked about avoiding extreme Calvinism, but we also want to avoid extreme Arminianism that really dismisses a lot of the predestination passages and focuses primarily on free will. Uh, that's a balance you also want to preserve, isn't that? Absolutely. Uh, we've been uh, picking on the extreme Calvinists, but uh, right now. Uh, actually, equally, if not more serious problem, is the so-called open theists that I call neo-theists or extreme Arminians, the uh, Clark uh, Pennix and the Greg Boyds and the uh, uh, John Sanders of the world, uh, who say that God doesn't even know the future, let alone able to predestine anything based on it. He doesn't know what future free acts are going to do. And he's uh, guessing, he's projecting, he's extrapolating, he's reacting um, that is not the God of the Bible who says, I know the end from the beginning in uh, Isaiah chapter 46, who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians uh, 1, and uh, who set aside the Lamb of God for our salvation before the foundation of the world. That is, that is a total distortion of the scriptural view, and I think uh, is a kind of a quasi-finite Godism, because God becomes finite in his knowledge, uh, and Greg Boyd said that God didn't even know Adam was behind the bush. Uh, when he says, Adam, where art thou? He didn't know. Well, then God isn't really 
uh, omnipresent even because he's not behind the bush himself and everywhere else. So when you look at it, they're really uh, coming up with uh, half of the attributes make God finite and the other half make him infinite and they got an inconsistent God. Yes, you know, I went to a school that was a strong Arminian school and I brought up several passages, uh, Ephesians 1, where it talked about chosen for the foundation of the world, predestined, uh, all these, and a lot of them either ignore those passages or redefine the predestination as simply saying, well, foreknowledge. That's, pre- that's another way of saying foreknowledge. Well, they do say that. All of Arminians say this based on foreknowledge, but these people have gone a step further. and That's why the Arminians ought to be chastening them, and some are, but they're not speaking out strongly enough or enough of them. They are distorting Arminianism. At least Arminius believed that God knew who was going to be saved and who wasn't, who was going to believe and who wasn't, and he chose based on that knowledge. But these people are saying God doesn't even know who's going to be saved, and he can't choose based on that because he doesn't know what they're going to do with their free will. In your book, you're saying let's avoid extreme Calvinism, but let's avoid extreme Arminianism, and you build a chapter which says let's... Your chapter is titled, A Plead for Moderation. So explain that chapter to us briefly as we well, bring this Well, I'm a moderate in. Calvinist, uh, and I believe uh, that uh, the, this is what the Bible uh, teaches. And I go down the, uh, the tulip, uh, the total depravity. I believe the total man is totally depraved in an extensive sense that it covers all of us, but not in an intensive sense that it destroys any of our abilities. I believe that uh, uh, election is unconditional from the standpoint of God's uh, choice to offer us salvation, but it's conditional from the standpoint of our uh, receiving it, limited atonement. I believe that it's unlimited uh, in its provision by God, but it's limited in its application only to those who believe. Irresistible grace. I believe it's irresistible on the willing, just like falling in love is, but it's not irresistible on the unwilling. That would be coercive. So I go through all of them and say I'm a moderate Calvinist, and I believe in all of those, perseverance of the saints. I believe that we have assurance and security. The extreme Calvinist believes that the elect have security, but you can't know for sure you're one of the elect until you die. So they don't have assurance. And the Arminian has assurance. You can know right today you're saved, but you don't know you're going to commit a serious or apostate sin tomorrow and lose your salvation. So I think there's a clear difference between moderate Calvinism and extreme Calvinism. Dr. Geisler, you wrap up Chosen But Free, your book on this subject, with um, an explanation of a term called voluntarism. Well, voluntarism as applied to God is the view that says that uh, it's good because God wills it. And essentialism is the view that says God wills it because it's good. And uh, an essentialist says that whatever God wills must be willed in accordance with his unchanging nature. He can't tomorrow will that hate would be right, you know. Uh, He has to will love because he's loved by his very nature. Where a voluntarist says, well, God voluntarily willed the moral law that we should be loving and not hate, he could have done otherwise. He could have willed just the opposite. Uh, And I think that that's just unbiblical and morally repugnant. A God of the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. Uh, the voluntaristy God, God could lie and it would be all right because God did it. Good grief. Uh, you know, that just, you can't even defend against the, the problem of evil. No. If you, if you hold to, a, to either one of those extremes. Well, of course, they would say there is no problem of evil because if God wills it, it's automatically good no matter what it is. We've been talking about the predestination and free will with one of the 
leading theologians of our time, Dr. Norman Geisler. And Dr. Geisler is also the former president and founder of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Geisler, in our closing moments, tell us about Southern Evangelical. Well, we started in 1992. We have $10 million worth of uh, buildings being completed uh, now in our second edition, almost 500 students from all over the uh, world. We have everything from a bachelor's degree to a Ph.D. in apologetics, all fully uh, accredited. And uh, one of our uh, more illustrious uh, graduates is uh, Pat Zuckerman. <laughs> there you go. NormGeisler.com for resources and information. Dr. Geisler, thanks for being with us on the show to address this difficult and deep subject. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be with you, and thank you for not calling me emeritus. <laughs> we want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just $2.50. On our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want. And we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. evidenceandanswers.org.